Detective Stephen Smith of the Toronto Police Services tells us about the big break they got in the case. So, I mean, we one of the good things is we were able to look at both the uh, the profiles that we received and we were able to tell that they had emigrated from the United Kingdom to um, a small town in Ontario called Belleville, Ontario. Um, so it's not a massive town. You're not talking like the city of Toronto. Um, there may be 40,000, 50,000 people, which, you know, still a good amount of people, but you're able to find familial lineage within that small community. Um, our big break was when we actually um, uploaded the family tree DNA because we received over 100 matches on family tree DNA, which really brought us down from about 30,000 people in our tree down to about 5,000. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Have you ever done any geographic profiling where you look at where the crimes are committed, like the the Green River Killer, you know, and the uh, Golden State Killer, where they geographically look at where they are, draw relationships between them? No, I haven't. I mean, we we don't have a whole lot that are connected through DNA, um, and we definitely don't have any that are are really connected across Canada as of yet. I mean, hopefully in the future. If there are those people out there that had been going across Canada, I mean, I know in the U.S. you guys have people that travel all over the place and and leave bodies throughout all your states. Dude, it's it's not that bad. <laughs> now, but let me tell you, the, the incidence of serial offenders and serial killers, for example, has really gone down like in the 80s uh, and 90s. It was really at a peak, but it's gone down since then. And I think some of that is because of the ability to use things like DNA, uh, the advances in fingerprints, advances in serology, whatever it is, we're out now able to link them together and solve cases. Because, you know, too, one of the challenges has always been is you cross, for us, you cross a state line or you want to share information with the feds. Uh, you know, information sharing was a huge issue because not everything got shared and not everybody knew what the other guy knew. Yeah. And I mean, I, I see that uh, happening up here. I mean, we're, we're, we've been pretty good. I mean, we've actually created systems from the, uh, the Paul Bernardo uh, killings to ensure that, um, that everybody's aware of what's going on. So if there's any sort of serial predator, um, where we usually have a notification, everybody's notified in regards to it across uh, different jurisdictions. Um, so we've got a, a pretty good method with that. We haven't seen a whole lot of DNA connections, as I said, across Canada, where we've had someone traveling Canada and, um, and either sexual assaults or murders. A little more in sexual assault. I mean, we've had a few where there's been sexual assaults in different jurisdictions. They've been able to connect it through DNA. But as far as homicides, we really haven't had uh, much of that. And, and I agree with you, the 80s. I mean, when I came to this unit and I started going through the reports from the 80s, it was unbelievable some of the things that went on back then. The white van was actually a thing. Like, people would just drive around and pull people into vans. And it, it was unbelievable some of the things that, that had happened that you just don't see these days, thankfully. Yeah. Does Canada have a centralized, uh, I mean, and who manages it, like centralized DNA, like ours is called CODIS, the Combined DNA Information System. Do you guys have something similar? We do. We have our national DNA data bank, um, but it's so far with our data bank, it's only um, 
We obviously have our crime scene data bank. The other is a convictor offender index, but that's only on certain threshold offenses. So I know in the US, uh, you guys take DNA for most offenses and most of the time you're starting to take it upon arrest, aren't you, instead of conviction? Yeah, for certain, you can't do it forever. You can't do it for a parking ticket, but yeah, for violent crimes, sexual related crimes, things like that, I think. And it depends upon the state too, because there's no federal statute. Because uh, here down here, the states really, a lot of them do their own thing. But I think what they do in California is a little bit different than what they do in you know Florida. But at the same time, I think they are collecting more DNA. And the other one they're collecting it from too, they used not to do it, are people who go to prison. You'd be surprised the number of hits they get of people who are convicted, they go to prison, and then they take their DNA, only to find out they're connected to another crime in another state. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you guys also do familial uh, DNA down there as well, right? See, we, we don't have those options as of yet. Hopefully, um, in the future, we have the options of, of A, taking it upon arrest, and B, uh, familial matching as well. Um, because that would open a lot of doors for us. I mean, just in Toronto alone, we have 42 homicides with what we believe is the offender's DNA, and we have no matches on our national DNA data bank. So let's level set now. Let's start talking about familial DNA and genetic genealogy, uh, you know, because some people are going to say, well, are they the same thing? Are they different? So let's level set on that, because and based on the training that you went to, too. So let's talk about that and then your training. So uh, tell us, are they the same thing? Are they different? And if so, how? No, familial uh, DNA is basically uh, what's called a YSTR match. So it's still um, STR, short tandem repeats. So it's basically one-to-one -one matching what you use autosomal DNA to do a one-to-one -one match. So when you want to um, take take someone's DNA or DNA from a crime scene and match it up to an offender, you want a one-to-one -one match that says that definitively is your offender. And that's the same as the, uh, the YSTR is just a, a male version of your um your str profile so you can track through the the male um the male side of of your family so it'll be able to uh if if you were on the database and the, you had a male relative that had committed an offense you'd be able to track it through the ystr wouldn't be able to say that it's your brother but it would say a male relative and then you'd have to go out and use uh traditional investigative means to find out exactly who it is but it would really narrow down your your person of interest pool um, genetic genealogy on the hand, on the other hand, uh, is SNPs, which is uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms. It's basically your genes between your genes. It tells you, you know, your eye color, your sex, your hair color, your uh, skin tone, your uh, your physical attributes, um, and you can utilize those to um, project how related you are to other people that have also done SNP testing. And that's kind of like the 23andMe and Ancestry.com stuff, right? That's right. Although police can't use those type of they sites. They can't use those. That's right. But, but it, but it is the same thing. for people who use that, that's how they, And have Correct. you ever heard of a company called Parabon Technologies? I've heard of Parabon a number of times, yep. Yeah, they're located just 15 minutes from where I'm at. And what what is so, I don't want to say scary in a bad way, it's scary in a good way, but you can take DNA now and you can actually get very close to what the person looks like. Give me a sample of DNA, and I can tell you just exactly what you were saying based on characteristics. Here's their facial features. Here's what they're going to look like. It is scary how close they come with their DNA work that they do compared when they find the actual victim, how close they are. 
Yeah, and that one's very emerging. Like that's we aren't there yet where we're uh, we're confident on that. But you're right. I mean, I've seen some of the uh, the portraits that they've put out, and they have been very close to the actual offenders once they're caught. Can you explain to our listeners why you cannot use the matches from 23andMe and those those other social type DNA sites? Jed match. Yeah, so the pay-per-use sites such as 23andMe, Ancestry and that, they don't allow police involvement. They're specifically, you're paying them for the service of um, providing your SNP testing so that you can find your relatives, build your family tree. Um, It's basically an investigative uh, tool for people in the community to utilize to find out their relatives. Um, Some of the other, the clearinghouses, like I like to call it, like... uh, uh, Jed match or family tree DNA, they actually, so people from the pay-per-use sites actually can put their, their profiles up on these other sites and people from around the world go to these sites to get a, a much larger match. So they'll be able to find a lot more of their relatives because people from all the different sites, if you use a pay-per-use site, you're limited to only the profiles on that site. If you go to one of these clearing houses, you have people from all the different sites uploading to those uh, sites. And what they've done is um, for serious offenses, such as uh, homicides or sexual assaults, they'll allow police um, searchability on their database, but they've built that into their terms of service. And as far as GEDmatch, they actually have you, um, you actually have to opt in for police involvement. So when the Golden State Killer was able to utilize GEDmatch, they were able to utilize 100% of their profiles. Um, But there was that case out of Utah where GEDmatch allowed them to utilize it and it became a bit of an issue because it was only for an aggravated, I say only, but it was for an aggravated assault instead of a homicide or sexual assault. And that's when we went to to the opt-in for police involvement. So we're down to about 17% of their database now. Yeah, you'd think for the good, you know, the good and the safety of the public that those databases could be hit with a subpoena, I guess. But I I didn't realize that they do have well, I think uh, some of them can be there. hit. Some of them say the thing, we don't voluntarily provide this. I mean, but to get to a subpoena, you know, or mm-hmm. even a warrant, you got the, it's not like you can't go in on a fishing expedition like what Jedmatch used to be. You could just, they created a fake profile and could go in there and scan. Now it's like, you're going to have to develop information. Again, probable cause to get a warrant here that says, okay, we know this information is here. So you can still get to it, right? But you have to have the, the threshold to get there is a legal standard now as opposed to just, hey, we sign on, we get on there, and we get access to what everybody else had. Yeah, and I mean, genetic genealogy itself is kind of a, it's kind of an investigative uh, uh, process. So, I mean, it's, it, it's not really providing you with um, evidence that you could, present at trial obviously you could present the uh the dna evidence at trial but the evidence that comes from um that comes from your genetic genealogy and the familial matching it isn't uh it isn't hard evidence right it's an investigative process that you use to get to the hard evidence so you couldn't go to one of those public sites and and do basically what we call an exploratory search to see if you could find a match in there it would be very difficult. I think that there's been about seven police forces in the U.S. that have tried to serve um, subpoenas or warrants on um, the pay-per-use sites, and every single one has been denied. Um, and I actually, I actually kind of agree with that. I mean, if people haven't, if people haven't agreed to allow their DNA for our searching, I don't really want to utilize it because that's a way that we may lose this process. Right? We want to keep this process. We don't want to. Uh, 
to overextend into privacy concerns. I mean, we have a lot higher threshold for privacy in Canada than I think you do in the U.S., um, and I think if we started doing that and people were able to come forward and say, I didn't agree to the police utilizing my DNA, I think that we would lose that for privacy concerns up here. Very well put. Yeah. And that's the thing. That's what we call precedents down here. When they go to the Supreme Court and somebody sets a precedent, then it becomes binding on all law enforcement like Miranda yeah. and, you know, uh, searches and things like that. So you never want to make bad case law because then you screw out over everybody else who wants to be able to use a tool. So you you do. And that was one of my biggest gripes with people is, and actually I did some news segments. They were talking about the privacy issues with this. I said, it's not a technology issue. It's a legal issue. It's a policy issue. I mean, it's how do we handle the privacy and, you know, what can you do? I don't believe in some of the, we call the American Civil Liberties Union down here, ACLU. Oh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. No, it's not. It's another tool. You know, we just need to figure out the boundaries of which we can use that tool. But are you telling me you don't want homicide solved? Are you telling me you don't want um, to take, you know, violent criminals off the street? If we can find a way to do it within a framework, why don't we do it? What they want to do is eliminate the use of some of these tools like facial recognition or this stuff. I said, no, you, you can't eliminate them. You can't take this out of the tool bag. Society needs this. We just need to figure out what's the policy framework and privacy framework we can utilize it in that that it doesn't make everybody happy. But if we can find that squishy middle to where it's like, OK, OK, my my whole standing doing work down at DO, our Department of Justice and other stuff. So if we can get to the point where people go, well, it could have been worse. That that to me is success right there. Nobody, you know, nobody likes it, but it's like but they go, well, it could have been worse so we can live with it. Yeah. And I mean, we've had some privacy concerns come up here as well. And what I like to say in regards to that, at least in the genetic genealogy field, is uh, if any of us knew that one of our relatives had committed a heinous sexual assault and, and homicide, we would call them in and call 911, call Crime Stoppers. We'd say, he just told me that he'd committed this murder or this sexual assault at whatever time with whatever victim. Well, people that are opting in for police involvement, they're just using their genetics to call 911. They may not know it's a relative of theirs, but if they did know it was a relative, then they would call 911 anyway. They would let us know that this was the offender. And this is just their genetics doing it for them now. You're talking about uh, drawing DNA from people that are incarcerated um, and and some people may think that's an invasion of the, of their privacy as well. But when you look at the recidivism rates, and I'm just I just looked that up here in the United States, our overall recidivism rate is almost 77 percent of criminals will commit another crime. Now, if you break it down into individual crimes, you see different rates. But what I did not see is in murders where there's a lot of recidivism, you know. And I guess it's because you get caught for that, and you you know you're probably done for maybe the rest of your life or even to the electric chair. Well, we don't have old Sparky anymore. I don't know of any state who does that. It's usually the needle down. They don't have the death penalty in Canada, do they? No, we haven't had the death penalty since I believe the seventies. Would you like yeah, to have the why. death penalty? I don't know. I mean, I guess on in certain <laughs> cases, <laughs> right? Yeah. There are. See, we ask we ask the hard questions here. How many yeah, provinces you know, are there? And... <laughs> that's one of the biggest issues, though. If you get somebody who commits a murder in the United States in a state that has the death penalty, and they go to Canada, Canada will not extradite them unless you take the death penalty off the off the table. However, there was, and I'm trying to think of the case. There was one case to where somebody who had committed a, a murder in a death penalty uh, eligible state went to Canada, but they'd stolen a car to do it. And the, the U.S. said, hey, look, we're just extraditing them uh, on the stolen car. That's all we're doing. <laughs> I remember that. I said, was it New York? 
It I was, think it was New York. Yeah. yeah, I think it was New York as well. I remember that one. I was like, ooh, that's a little bit of an end run. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of countries, too, specifically Colombia, um, yeah. you know, South Mexico. America, their maximum penalty is 30 years in prison. And so to to get those people extradited, the United States has to agree that they will not exceed whatever the maximum penalty is in, in the original country. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So, yeah, it sucks. Well, it's anyway. So, uh, yeah, but there's a lot of stuff. So here's you going. You attended this conference. You said they were talking at such a high level. You didn't understand it. Now we're talking about YSTR and STR, and you're just rolling these scientific terms off the tip of your tongue, you know, just like it's like it's old home week. So let's let's start talking about this case now, because the one we want to talk about is Christine Jessup, and this is a 1984 cold case. She was kidnapped um, on December 31st. or on October 3rd, 1984, and she's a nine-year-old just outside of uh, Toronto there. So let's talk about this case. Give us some framework for this case and what it was and uh, how you came about pulling this case out and started working on it again. Yeah, so Christine, as you said, was a nine-year-old young lady, and she was was at school. It was October 3rd, 1984. Um, Her dad was actually um, incarcerated at the time just for fraud, things involving his business um, and her mom and her brother had went down to visit him in jail and sh- she was to come home from school um, set herself up you know like we did in the 70s and 80s and Latch the pa- kids is what the, we used to call them absolutely and the parents would be home cook dinner whatever else um, but unfortunately when her mom and brother arrived home they found no no sign of Christine um, and that obviously uh, started in a a huge search for uh, for her because it was believed that she was abducted. So she was, um, uh, this was actually north of Toronto. It's called York Region. So the York Regional Police had carriage of the investigation originally. And then uh, December 31st, 1984, her, uh, her body was found in a different jurisdiction, uh, Durham Regional Police. So we had... Uh, two jurisdictions, neither of which were Toronto at the time. One had the homicide, one had the abduction, and uh, they had to work together to try to prosecute the case. Quick question about that. When when a crime occurs in one place, and like I said, the body's found in another, can either place prosecute both crimes, or do you have to prosecute the, the kidnapping in the one jurisdiction and the murder in the other? No, usually one jurisdiction will take it, um, and most of the times it's jurisdiction where the body is found. But on certain occasions, um, if uh, uh, so, say a scene's found in one jurisdiction and the body's in the other, um, a lot of times that the place where the scene is found will take the jurisdiction of the case, but they'll prosecute everything together. I mean, usually, you know, what would you get on top of a homicide um, for an abduction anyway? So usually that part would would probably be dropped if they were convicted of the homicide. Do you uh, do you have in your notes there? Do you recall how the body was found? What were the circumstances? Yeah, so it it was uh, a bush area in Durham region. So Durham region, the southern area is uh, um, cities. We have Pickering, Ajax, Whitby, Oshawa, and then the northern area of Durham region is uh, basically farmers' field, uh, backwoods type area where. You know, people kayak, canoe, hike, that sort of thing. So she was found just off the roadway, uh, about 30 feet off the roadway in a uh, tree, bushy tree area. And her body was uh, was just left there. It, it looked like they had attempted to bury her and just 
just decided to just leave the body there. And what was the what what, what from the uh, autopsy? What was the manner of death? So the manner of death was stabbing. I mean, it must have been horrific. I can't even imagine what she went through as a nine-year-old. She had defensive wounds on her arms, so obviously he was coming at her with a knife. Um, he had cut into her breastbone um, a few times, as many as five, where he obviously wasn't able to um, fully penetrate her body with a knife. So he was he was just nicking her body. And then there's one stab wound where he put it basically right through her breastplate and through the uh, the vertebrae in the back of her neck, uh, which was obviously the, the fatal blow. Um, on top of that, she was also sexually assaulted. So, I mean, you can't even imagine, like you can't even imagine what, what oh, a nine-year-old went through. Now, oh. it's cold, it's winter. So, you know, again, we're just being clinical here, but it's it's important to to so people get a good idea. Because it's colder weather, what was the state of decomposition on the body to allow you to under to know that she was sexually assaulted? So, I mean, unfortunately, in those area, obviously, with uh, animals and such, the body Predators, was uh, yeah. yeah, the body was was not in great shape. Um, but there was clothing left at the scene, and they were able to. Um, uh, the investigators at the time did do a good job of preserving all the evidence, so they preserved all the evidence from the scene. Um, which benefited us, obviously, years later in the investigation, because, uh, you know, at the time in the in the early 80s, you wouldn't have had DNA available to you. So um, the preservation of that evidence became a huge factor. Was the was the body fully decomposed by that point? Not fully. There was some um, there was some um, flesh on the bones, um, but very little. Um, but as I said, all her. Uh, all of her clothing was still there at the scene, but it didn't appear that that was the homicide scene. I mean, there was blood on her clothing and such, but there was no blood in the soil. Um, so it appears that she had been um, sexually assaulted and probably murdered elsewhere and then dumped in that spot. How was she found? Was it just somebody hunting or fishing or going out that way? Yeah, it was just someone out for a walk and came across a body, which is uh, horrific. But I mean, the place where it was, just thank God that they actually went through that area because it was a, a heavily brushed area. It's not a place that you'd normally uh, walk through. So, And something like that, does that, I mean, knowing, and we're not talking about future, what uh, everybody knows now, but we're talking about back then, if your notes show it or if you know, um, was there an, um, a belief that the perpetrator had knowledge of the area because of where the body was dumped or was there anything to lead you to believe that the perpetrator was local? I mean, I, I can't say what the uh, initial investigators were thinking, but that's one of the things, as soon as we looked through the case, we thought that they must've had some attachment to both areas, both where she was abducted. I mean, where she was abducted was a tiny, small town. It was basically, you know, one of the, the two uh, stop sign towns. There was maybe 60, 70 people in the town and where she was, uh, where her body was left was in an area that unless you knew where you were going, you wouldn't just randomly end up there. You, you have no idea what's inside the bush there. You have no idea if, if people are living beyond that. So we believe that, that the offender would have had, um, connections or would have at least known both areas. And this is a unique cold case because this actually involves, and, and let's get into this next part too, because, the police identify what they believe is a suspect. They charge this person, take him to trial, and convict him. 
Let, uh, let's talk about the stage of that, because it, this is why I asked you before about how can you, if you're found not guilty, you know, or guilty, you know, how can they appeal stuff like that? So let's talk about, let's set the stage for the initial suspect that was arrested for this. Yeah. So early on in the investigation, um, both the York Regional Police and the Durham Regional Police focused in on a neighbor of uh, Christine Jessup, um, Guy Paul Moran, and they inevitably arrested him and charged him with the abduction and murder of Christine. Um, At his first trial, he was found not guilty. The Crown appealed. Um, A new trial was set. He was tried again. He was found guilty. and Let's this. stop there for a second, because you said it would take new evidence or something you know, big, because it's a laborious process to do this. What was it the first time that allowed uh, them to uh, uh, charge him just in the first place? What, what did they come up with that said, this is the guy? So they actually appealed errors in the trial. So they didn't actually um, bring new evidence. So they actually, their appeal was based on errors that they believed were made during the initial trial to get a new trial ordered. But going back to just the initial arrest, though, what what from your files, what what did what what was there that allowed them to arrest him and charge him in the first place? What did they believe they had? So they believed that I mean, they did a whole pile. I can't even get into everything that they did. I mean, they did uh, undercover stuff. They did uh, a lot of forensics where they believed they were matching um, certain fabrics to so f- fiber microscopy that's right microscopy of, of fibers and stuff like that yeah and just his uh his post um his post offense demeanor those sort of things they utilized all those i mean back in the 80s it's it's different i mean we can't it's hard for us to look back from 2022 to the 80s and say you know what were you guys doing because they worked with with just what they had right um they didn't have DNA, so they they used fibers. They used um, opportunity, means, uh, motive, um, those sort of things. That's how Wayne Williams, the Atlanta child killer, was convicted. Was on microscopy fibers, finding fibers, you know, in the station wagon that were also found on the body. So again, you go to war with what you have. I mean, that's what they had back then, and uh, apparently it was convincing enough that uh, court, the Crown, you know, the, the other, the jury, or you know, at least it was enough for them to bring the case. I should say. That's right. Absolutely. So they believed that they had enough at the time to actually charge him um, and convict him of the homicide of Christine. I mean, it, it, it was a highly charged case back then. I mean, small communities, a nine-year-old girl, th- this stuff just didn't happen at, at in the 80s, right? Like kids didn't just go missing. They didn't have murdered. I mean, this changed the way everybody operated. I mean, it used to be, as you guys know, when you grew up, it's like, go out, we'll see you at dinner. Just make sure you're not late for coming back at dinner time, right? Um, and this kind of changed the uh, the operations for, for families because they started to realize that, that these types of predators are out there. And I did, in our research, I was reading about this where I think it was the next day after she disappeared, the entire community came out and launched a search operation for, you know, which is indicative of a smaller community where everybody knows each other, but it was that important. You know, and just to just to put aside one rumor that's out there that uh, you know you see in these TV shows where there's a missing person, they say oh, you got to wait 24 or 48 hours before they show up before we can do anything. That's bullshit. You know, if you if especially in a child case, if somebody's missing, there is no legal standard that says you have to wait a certain amount of time. You know, and and modern day police are not going to tell you that. At least I certainly hope they won't. Uh, so. 
jump on, especially in a child case, jump on it immediately. Oh, you uh, have it's to. the best bet you got. Uh, th- that's one of the biggest uh, messages that our missing persons unit tries to get out on a daily basis is if someone's missing, call us. Uh, like the the sooner we get on it, the better the chances are to uh, to be able to find that person, especially a child, especially someone vulnerable. Um, don't wait. Like you get on it right away. Get get the information to us and let us do it. You know what? If this person returns on their own, great. So be it. At least they're found, right? But the safety of everybody involved is is what matters. You know, and the other thing too is it's it's unfortunate to think, but I mean, I don't know enough about the case, but I'm just sitting here thinking. Even by that night, they're getting all the the search party out. They're getting everybody out the next day. I've got to believe by that point, she's already dead. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I don't think that uh, that he would have have kept her for very long. I mean, the, it would have been hard to control um, a young girl that way. Um, and it would have raised a lot of notice in that area because they would they would say, "I know that guy. He doesn't have a daughter, or you know, what's she doing over here?" That's right. Yeah, those those things all would have came into play. So I don't think um, I, I imagine by the time they were searching, she was probably already deceased. Unfortunately, um, which again is just uh, it, it's just it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, and that yeah. that goes back to the Polly Klaus case too, when she was abducted. Um, by Mark Allen Davis, it took them 85 days to come back around and find her body. She was already dead. She was dead that night when Richard Allen Davis was contacted by two deputies on the side of the road. But so we, we tell people, why is it important even to report it then? What if we could have shortened that whole 85-day loop back down to five days? I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't change the outcome, but it saves resources. The family's going through 80 additional days of grief they don't need to without knowing what's happened. So uh, to your point, there's a whole reason to report this right away. Sorry, Steve, I was talking, or Murph, I was talking over you. Yeah, now that, and what you just described there is, is so true because, you know, the fam, for the families, I mean, it's just torturous to have to go through that not knowing phase. And is she still alive? Is there a chance? Because you don't want to give up that hope. But I, and, uh, again, in researching this, looking at some of the um, information they used to prosecute the guy. And we're certainly not second guessing law enforcement because this was 40 years ago. But uh, one of the, one of the descriptions of this, uh, the person that was accused of it, Guy Paul Marin was that he was a strange acting. He was a weird person. Well, that's not evidence. I mean, heck you, you listen to Morgan every time we get on the show, he's weird. I still hang out with him. And it's not a felony either, you know, yeah, yeah, no, and, and he was. I mean, he was an odd fella, um, and and that was one of the things that brought their their attention to him. Um, he didn't come out to help search for her. He didn't attend the uh, funeral. All those things led them, um, gave them little bits to to look at him further and and kind of. I mean, obviously, there there was a Kaufman report that came out on this uh, fifteen hundred pages on the investigation, and basically, it came down to at the time the police had tunnel vision, and that's. That was the problem in this That's case. That's a fatal problem. You lock in on somebody, yeah. you get this cognitive bias going, and it's 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 actually a lesson. When I went through an investigative course, they actually used a quote from Joseph Stalin. They said, here's what you want to avoid. They said, in police work, it should be, show me the crime and I'll find the man. Don't tell me, find, here's the man, now go find the crime. Right. You know? We always say to each other, you know, just follow the evidence. Um, don't lock in on someone and make the evidence fit what your theory is, um, follow the evidence. The evidence will lead you to where you need to go. Um, and that's, that's how you have to do it, not the other way around. One of the go other ahead. things I read was where uh, the family was saying that they arrived home at 4.10 p.m. 
And then in Moran's statement, he's saying he arrived home at 4.15, which, you know, he's saying I wasn't even there. I, there's no way I could have committed the crime. But through, I, I would assume it was tunnel vision, just like you said, the police kind of suggested to the family that, well, were you sure it was 4.10 or could it have been after 4.15, you know? And, and it's, it's this, you know, you tell a story long enough, you actually start to believe it, one of those type things. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, in this case, as I said, the investigators did do a number of very good things, but there were some things that uh, that you look back on, you kind of cringe, right? You're just like, mm, you know, you're. And hindsight's you're, always twenty twenty. That's right. You're trying to make the evidence fit your right. you know, offender. You know what it is too. It's a small town. I grew up in a small town too. It's like people want to feel safe again, and the only way they can feel safe is the police need to make an arrest to know that the killer's off the street. And so I think there's that added pressure is that this is not like New York or Chicago or Philadelphia, right? I hate to say it that way, but for them, like Philadelphia, already 100 homicides, it's like they don't have that same kind of pressure for a single case like this one does for a small area like that. Yeah, this would have been highly charged. I mean, right across the board from um, from the the police brass to the uh, the politicians to the members of the community. Uh, everybody wanted this solved. Everybody wanted this locked away. They they couldn't have this outstanding. They couldn't have this in their community that a young girl was taken from all under all their noses. Right? I mean, you guys know, growing up in small places, it, the community feels responsible because everybody was there. Everybody knew her. Everybody was like, why weren't we looking out for her? Hey, and by the all way, right. too, Steve, I got to correct you about one thing or Murph. Uh, it's Guy, not Guy. It's Guy in France. It's Guy in Canada, not Guy, Paul. It's Guy Paul. Am I right, Steve Smith? Am I right? You are correct. Ah, I, there you should go. Should I respond to that? Because you know the listeners know what I'm going to say. Yeah, well, our players, <laughs> players. Now, let's just move on from that. So let's get back to you, Steve. So, um, but so this is very interesting. You said they appealed some errors in the case, and they were able to go back and try them again. What errors did they appeal, and then what was the outcome of the second trial? You know what? I don't know what the the specific errors that they actually appealed it on, but it obviously was enough that uh, the court of appeal was able to um, to quash the uh, quash his the initial trial and order a retrial. I think I read it was uh, uh, it was an error in instructions given by the judge. Yeah, that that's usually what it is. Either um, instructions by the judge or. Um, uh, the, um, and, and basically anything that the judge does, they're usually, there's something there that they appeal it on. Um, and that's usually how they get it both, it's both procedural. for defense. That's yeah. right. Both right. for defense and for prosecution to appeal and get a new trial ordered. So yeah. he gets a new trial. What happens? So he's actually convicted at the next trial. Um, he's with the same evidence, the same, basically everything else, right? Yeah. I mean, they did bring forward a little more evidence. Um, they went back and, and as you said, I mean, they re-interviewed some people, they provided a little more evidence of, of, um, police dogs sniffing, those, those sort of things. It's, uh, nothing that's, that was earth shattering or we would say, absolutely, this is a smoking gun, but I guess it was enough to convict him at this time. Wow. And that was 1986. So he gets convicted in, uh, or no, April of 1985. He's arrested January of 86. He was found not guilty. They appealed the overturn, and then, so he gets a new trial. Um, and so he's in prison for quite a long time until 1995, right? That's right. 
And then uh, in 95, obviously, his lawyers, um, DNA was in its infancy at that point, um, but his lawyers were able to uh, to have the the information from the the uh, crime scene tested and a DNA profile was able to be created. Uh, Guy Paul obviously offered his DNA and it was not a match. So at that point he was, uh, he was acquitted. Um, and that's when the, uh, the Kaufman report, um, the Kaufman uh, investigation was begun into the wrongful conviction of, of Guy Paul Moran in, in regards to this case. Talk about Kaufman. What is what is a Kaufman investigation or the Kaufman report? So um, he was a judge. So he was a justice appointed to um, look through the investigation and see how we were able to convict a uh, an innocent person of a crime of this sort. Um, so he went through and he actually established a report of 1,500 pages that outlined exactly the errors that were made um, by both Durham and York Regional Police. Um, the interesting part at that point was that the case was actually brought down to Toronto at that point, and we were provided with some government money to develop a task force to continue the investigation in regards to the, the Jessup homicide. But I mean, that was in the mid-90s by that point. I mean, we're, we're uh, over a decade on in this investigation. Um, so they set up a task force in Toronto and they started to, to reinvestigate the case. How did you handle that from a jurisdiction standpoint? Because you made you said something interesting earlier. You said at one time it wasn't part of Piranha. Were you referring to, uh, was that Durham or something you were mentioning? Yeah, both Durham and York are not part of Toronto. So we have our own separate police services. So there's a York Regional Police, there's a Durham Regional Police, and then the Toronto Police. So we police Toronto proper. Uh, York Region is uh, north of Toronto, and Durham Region is east of Toronto borders. Um, so it's three different jurisdiction of police forces, um, and then Toronto took on the uh, the task force to to continue the investigation. So when you take on the task force, does that give you now jurisdiction? I mean, how, how is that handled? Uh, because if you said if those are separate regions, uh, you've got no policing authority in those two areas, right? Oh no, we do. We have policing in uh, anywhere in Ontario. So as long as we oh, don't go, do? yeah, okay. as long as we don't go outside of Ontario, uh, police in Ontario have jurisdiction anywhere inside of Ontario. We can request um, to go to other provinces and such, and we'll usually be granted. But we actually have to make that a request. But in Ontario, we're able to police anywhere in Ontario. Oh, see, that's interesting too, because like if you work, you know, the majority of time down here, if you work in a city, your authority is only good for that city. You have no authority mm -hmm. in the county unless you get a county commission card, and then you have no authority for the state unless, uh, Murph, you know, you did this too. You'd put guys on a task force, you'd give them DEA authority, which would expand the scope of their authority. Right. Right. And, you know, just looking to this guy, uh, Marin, he, he did 18 months in prison. So it wasn't all that long, unless you're the one doing the 18 months. Yeah. Well, especially as a child murderer. Uh, I mean, it, it had probably had to be pretty rough. Or a, a convicted child murderer that actually didn't murder a child. I mean, I couldn't even imagine. But see, to the prisoners, they don't care. I mean, if you're in there and you're convicted, you're a killer. You're also a, a rapist yeah. of right. a nine-year-old daughter. You, you, He's had to be what we would call down here administrative segregation or, uh, you know, he'd have to be in some kind of protective custody in prison because there is a code of honor among uh, bad guys in prison and child rapists, pedophiles, usually uh, uh, they have issues. Yeah, I mean, this case just, uh, it shines a spotlight on 
um, a number of lives that were ruined through this case. I mean, it was just, just it was horrific overall, like a, just resoundingly awful. But but this does lead you down a path. So when he's exonerated, um, Guy Palmerin, he's exonerated. I mean, like, and I saw a, a video interview of his attorney. They said, look, it, there's always people out there that say, yeah, but. So it's like the DNA pretty much cleared. It's like there is no way the DNA on our victim uh, is this DNA here. I mean, he is not the person who did this. That's correct. He's not the person that did this. Um, so again, with our task force, they took over 300 swabs of male DNA. I mean, the tips that came in on this case, this case was in Ontario, it was uh, massive. I mean, everybody was... Um, was all over this case. Everybody knew about this case. Everybody was involved in this case. The amount of tips that we'd get on this case was uh, astronomical. Everybody had an idea. It's my brother, my dad, my ex, my, my, you know, everyone and their brother. A lot of what we would call revenge. There's revenge porn and there's revenge tips. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And I mean, they took over 300 DNA samples and obviously none were a match to our offender. But did any of those samples lead to other crimes? Uh, nope, none of them did. <laughs> well, it, you would think you at least one so, of one of those people out there would have been tied to something. Yeah, and in Canada, if you provide a sample, it can only be uh, searched against the case that you're investigating. Oh, so you can't you can't use it as a fishing expedition, so to speak, and and compare it against everything else in there. No, if you provide a sample willingly, it can only be compared against the case that you're actually investigating. See, there's a tip well, we don't want to give criminals out there in Canada. It's like, <laughs> if, you did, if you know you didn't do the crime, give the DNA because they can't use it for anything else. That's right. That Dang, sucks. that between that and importing cheese illegally, this yeah. is, Canada, you've got some strange laws up there. But, that, but then again, you're our favorite neighbor. So, uh, right. Well, let's, let, let's, let's get into this a little bit more, too, because you've, when did this task force start? So it started in 96. So it began in 96. That's and, well before, I mean, you, you were just, uh, how long you'd been on the police service by then? Yeah, I, I was actually just hired in 96. I didn't even get on the uh, road till 97. So um, uh, I obviously I had nothing to do with uh, with this or any involvement in this. I was I was way beyond that. Do you remember that. hearing about the task force in the case when you came on? I mean, it's oh, like everybody in that area probably knew about it, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, everybody knew about this case. I mean, we all grew up with it, right? Um, so everybody knew about it. Everybody was aware of it. Um, we were all aware that we were investigating it now, uh, doing everything that we possibly could to uh, to find the offender. So now this now we bring back in the issue of training. So when now because you went to the training, is that what made you want to open or take another look at the Jessup case, or did you are were you already looking at the Jessup case prior to the training? Yeah, we were already looking at the Jessup case. So what we were doing at at that point with some of our cases, especially the Jessup cases, that uh, we do some media releases um, just to keep it uh, live in the community. But the, as I said before, the thing that would happen when we do those media releases is we'd get a glut of tips. Um, and it was so labor intensive to try to track down these tips. It was almost a full-time job for one of our investigators just to manage these tips. Um, so we all met together, everyone from the office, and we decided we had to come up with a new way to investigate this. And when we heard the, uh, um, the Golden State Killer, that really piqued our interest is just we really didn't have any knowledge in it. So the uh, going up to that course really kickstarted that. And we really started to delve in and, and educate ourselves in regards to uh, genetic genealogy. 
Who instructed that particular piece of it? I know we we did a little bit of talk in the pre-call before we started, but uh, talk about who came up and presented the uh, GSK case. Um, so it, it was, I believe, two of the FBI guys, the one fellow that did the uh, the actual genealogy, another investigator, as well as two of the prosecutors. Wow. And how long did that how long did that particular presentation go? Oh, it was uh, at least half a day. It may have been a full day. I don't remember if it was half a day or full day, um, but the information that they provided was, uh, as I said, I mean, because we didn't have the knowledge and the basis in it, um, it, it was almost overwhelming. Like we had to take all the information that they provide and they did a great job of providing us with the information and exactly what they did. But we had to take that and actually investigate for ourselves and, and uh, teach ourselves what we were actually talking about or what they were talking about. I mean, they were using all the terms that we now use that people look at us like uh, we have three heads when we're utilizing as well. Right. Um, and that's, that's, we were in that same spot when, when they were giving that to us. How long did it take you to get up to speed to where you could feel confident enough to say, yeah, let's just start applying these techniques? <laughs> so, I mean, it was about four months. Um, and still, even now, I look back at, at that four months and I thought I knew what I was doing. And I was still, I was, I was in my infancy. I mean, since then, over the past two years, uh, it's every day I learned something new. I just keep learning and learning and learning. Um I went into it thinking this wouldn't be a problem. I actually thought I could do my own genealogy. Big mistake. Uh, I don't have the personality to do uh, to do genealogy and build family trees and stuff. It's uh, it's not my thing. Are you saying thing. you have some kind of professional ADD? <laughs> Pretty much. I, I just don't have that. It's like being a, a forensics officer. I mean, the attention to detail and and how slow and methodical. It just doesn't work for me. I just I can't do it. I. I I have to keep moving a little bit. Um, well, let's let's talk about a name that you're familiar with, then Anthony Redgrave. Yeah, yeah, I know Anthony. How, how did you come across Anthony Redgrave, and what was his role? So Anthony was actually so the lab that we utilized to do our genetic genealogy was uh, Othram Labs out of uh, Texas. So they actually at the time had a contract with Anthony to do some of the genealogy. Um, so initially he was involved in the case. So he began, um, building our family trees along with, uh, some of our in-house genealogists that were cutting their teeth on, uh, on this case. Um, and then eventually, um, I'm not sure what happened, but Anthony's, uh, contract wasn't continued with Othram. And then our genealogists, uh, took over the trees from there and built it out further. How long of a process was, because we're going to get into this, so how long of a process was it until you got your first break, and what was that first break? So we sent the DNA in in December of 2019. I believe it was uh, late January, early February 2020 when we actually received our uh, profiles back and our matches from Jedmatch. Um, Jedmatch originally had only provided us with two matches, and they were fifth cousin matches. Um, but one was on the maternal, one was on the paternal side. So we didn't have much to work with. Um, and What's the significance of whether it's maternal or paternal when you're looking at these matches? So if you have one on each side, you're able to develop... Um, what you need to do is really, from the DNA that you have, build back to the most recent common ancestors. So basically the eight uh, great-grandparents. 
Um, if you have one on the maternal side and one on the paternal side, you actually have a lead on each family. Because what you need to do is you need to build back to your most recent condiment ancestors and then down to your offender. And one of the, the key components is finding out how those two families uh, interact with each other, whether through marriage or whether through the birth of a child. Um, and then that you're able from there to move down to your offenders. So uh, just, okay, so I'm the guy looking at you like you got three heads. <laughs> as you're describing all this, just so our listeners know. What you're describing here, though, is you're looking for that familiar, the family lineage, correct? Now, this is not a DNA, DNA match like you see in the crime shows on TV. Is that correct? No, that's correct. So we're looking familial matching or familial lineage. So through um, the, the SNP, the SNP profiles. So again, we're utilizing the genes between your genes to um, see how familial re related you are to other people on the database. And from that, you're able to, through open source uh, investigations, you're able to build back to the most re recent common ancestors and then down to the offender. Um, the autosomal DNA, which is what you usually see on the crime scenes where you do a one-to-one -one match, that's how you confirm at the end. So a if a name's provided by a genealogist, then you have to go out and actually confirm that by obtaining that person's DNA and matching it directly to the crime scene samples. Okay. You know, every time you say snip between the genes, man, it just hurts for a minute. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, SNP, not <laughs> SNIP, right? So, <laughs> okay. All right. Just, we wanted to clear that up because every time you said snip between the genes, I'm going, ouch. <laughs> yeah. Folks, we are not cutting out any male parts. Uh, nobody was harmed in the making of this podcast. So no one was neutered. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it, it is time and labor, obviously labor intensive. So you get to this fifth cousin, you start working it, um, walk us through the process now. So, I mean, over yeah. what period of time, and let's start talking about how you start developing things, how you start developing leads. So, I mean, we, one of the good things is we were able to look at both the, uh, the profiles that we received and we were able to tell that they had emigrated from the United Kingdom to um, a small town in Ontario called Belleville, Ontario. Um, so it's not a massive town. You're not talking like the city of Toronto. Um, there may be 40, 50,000 people, which, you know, still a good amount of people, but you're able to find familial lineage within that small community. Um, our big break was when we actually um, uploaded to Family Tree DNA because we received over 100 matches on Family Tree DNA, which really brought us down from about 30,000 people in our tree down to about 5,000. Yeah, but that's wow, still, that's really still a that lot. Down. <laughs> <laughs> Guess what? You've only got 5,000 holes to dig, okay? Listen, as I said, that's why I don't do genealogy. <laughs> you have people that do that. They're, uh, the people that do it are phenomenal at it. But as I said, it takes a certain personality to be able to do that and to, to work through that amount of data. It's unbelievable the job that these genealogists do. So you're down to 5,000. How do you manage that? Well, I mean, we have a combination of A, open source data to um, provide familial connections um, and to build out families as well as uh, we would do some target testing. So we would, if we wanted to um, either include or exclude a certain um, family uh, segment, 
we would uh, approach, and obviously we wouldn't get close to our offender, but this is uh, staying fairly out into the the cousins where you wouldn't know who it was. Um, we would approach people and actually get them to do kits for us. And we'd able be able to include or exclude that uh, branch of the tree, um, which really helped us narrow it down to uh, to a couple of families. How did you, how, what's the approach like? You go talk to somebody, say, hey, look, uh, a, a, a cousin of a cousin of a mother of a, you know, brother of a second, you know, on your cousin separated three times on your brother's side might be our killer. I mean, how do you approach somebody like that and get them to participate in this? And when you do, how many of them say, raise your hand, go, yeah, I'll do it. And how many of them go, uh, piss off, mate, not today. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, and we've developed a real process in regards to this entire genetic genealogy. Like we've wanted to make it uh, prosecutable. So we've really put a lot of time into developing a process. Um, so our first process is seeing people that actually have trees up on other, um, other sites um, that may be related. So we can approach them and ask them if they're willing to pour it over to Jedmatch. Um, if they pour it over, we, we would instantly get the, um, it's called Centimorgans, but it's basically how related you are to another person. So if they pour it over to Jedmatch, we'd immediately get a match. And then they can take their uh, tree back off Jedmatch if they want. Or they can utilize uh, the matches on there to continue their genealogy. A lot of these people that are are building their only own family trees and such, they're really into genealogy, so they completely understand what we're doing. So they make an informed decision. And I mean, to be honest, with the people that have their trees up and such, it's a pretty good success rate. A lot of them are willing to come over and help when you explain that there was a murder. We don't get into what the murder was. Uh, it was in Toronto, and one of their family members that they probably don't know may have committed that. Um, a lot of them will help. There's other times when we approach, and we usually target professionals, doctors, lawyers, uh, firemen, police officers, um Well, you can't teachers. include firemen if you say professional. Sorry, you just... <laughs> well... <laughs> The evidence eradication teams. <laughs> That's exact, my exact term. You go up to an accident, work an accident. Here comes the evidence eradication team with their two and a half inch hose, spraying off everything in the scene. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so we would approach professionals and we would tell them what we're doing and uh, we'd actually get them to do a kit for us on a, on a rare occasion. Um, but it, it really helps us to narrow down uh, the trees and, and really focus in on, on who we're looking for. So, don't hold us in suspense. So you, you start doing these things. How fast does it take you to narrow it down to something that's manageable now? So, I mean, in all honesty, with 5,000 people in our tree, that's not bad for the genealogists. Like they're able to narrow that down fairly quickly. Um, they're able to narrow that down and they were, they're able to provide us basically two families that were first cousins. They think that their idea is it's, it's one of these two families. It's the offender is going to be in one of these two families. And how close does that put you, if we were looking like, you know, first level, second level, third level out, how close does that put you to the offender now? Are you just two steps away, three steps away? How close are you? Yeah, at this point, we're right on top of the offender. I mean, if we're able to get uh, DNA from family members, I mean, the one family had about eight brothers. Uh, the other family had two. So if we're able to get that, we're able to, again, when we use the, the YSTR, so we're able to do one-to-one -one testing. So even if it doesn't come back as a match, we're able to use the YSTR testing to tell us if it's a, a male um, relative of, of this person's or not. Is this, so this is a voluntary thing that these potential suspects are going to be involved with? 
sometimes it's voluntary. Sometimes uh, we use investigative means to collect the DNA. So um, you mean like punch them in the nose and get a blood sample? This is Canada. We don't. Yeah, we don't do that up here. It's Canada. We just oh, give them a block sorry, of cheese sorry. and then you know we take it back afterwards. <laughs> and then when they go, ah, oh, this stuff is old, <laughs> yeah. and they spit it out. That's right. Um, we take it. When you use investigative means, give us give us an idea without giving away state secrets. But like you're looking at discarded uh, items that would have DNA on there, everything from cups to straws to did you go? Did you do trash dumps? Did you go do tra- dumpster diving? Th- those are the types of things. Yeah, exactly what you're what you're talking. Yeah, There's but you're this... in a suit. Would you ever do dumpster diving? I prefer not to, but uh... <laughs> he puts gloves on. You know, that's why you're an acting sergeant. You can delegate that. I'll, I'll do what I have to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, okay. So, uh, what what happens next? So you start narrowing it down. How do you approach and what, what kind of information do you get that allows you to narrow it down to the particular family uh, tree? So the, they actually provide us with two family names and say, we believe it's one of these offenders. So at that point, um, one of the big things that we've implemented here in Toronto is we keep a separation of our genealogists and our investigators. So we don't let them cross-contaminate each other. So our investigators aren't giving names that they may try to fit into their tree. And our genealogists aren't giving names that they're trying to find within the box. We keep that separated so that everybody comes up with the names organically. Um, so when they provide us with that name, then we start to use uh, traditional investigative means to collect DNA and uh, narrow down whether it's our uh, our offender or not. All right. So what happened? So, of course, at the time we're about to go out and do that, we're in the midst of COVID. So, of course, nobody's going out. Nobody's doing anything. So trying to collect DNA is a little more difficult. It took us, I believe, about eight weeks um, to get a sample from one of the, the brothers on the, the side. The one side of the family, um, basically every male was convicted of, of child sexual offenses. Um, oh, geez. What? Yeah, almost every male in the, the family. So we thought that the, absolutely these are our guys. I mean, the, the father had divorced his, his wife and then married a 14-year-old girl. Like, we were like, these are the people. Like, this is it um we get the dna i didn't know you guys had a branch of west virginia up in canada (laughs) hey but at least we marry you know people not sheep and cows like you know kansas Yeah, West Virginia, where men are men and sheep are nervous. Um, <laughs> oh, that's Kansas. That's Kansas. Now, and if I divorce my wife, she's still my sister. So that, that was West the other Virginia. big question. That's, that's West, West Virginia. Virginia. <laughs> so, Steve, I mean, so uh, you're sitting here rolling. The, uh, it's almost like, oh, my God, if this is not it, then I mean, it's it's almost like you hit the jackpot, oh, yeah, right? We, the we father, th- eight brothers? Yeah, we thought absolutely that it was going to be one of these brothers. I mean, the one brother had killed himself. He walked in front of a truck and um, we thought, absolutely, this is this is our family. And uh, we get the DNA and it's no match, no YSTR match. It's not a male relative of this family. Wow. Oh, but- my God. But I mean, now you've got a whole new bevy of, of suspects for all these other crimes. I know, I know. Just shaking our Holy head cow. at that. So then, obviously, we have to move on to the uh, the other side. All right. So I mean, it's almost, it's almost like you got to be walking around the office for a while. Go. Are you sure? Test this again. This this can't yeah. be right. Or, or you're thinking like, dad isn't dad, and that's the pro- like. There's everything that goes through your head, right? There's ah. A- see, there's another one too. It's like you grew up. You know, it's like he's not our real dad. You know, well, we thought he was. Believe me, when you're doing these genetic genealogy investigations, you find a lot of things. I think we found seven fathers that weren't the actual fathers in our investigation. Um, Oops. So you're just like, this was a surprise to them. <laughs> 
We didn't actually make a lot of people aware of it. Uh, yeah, you know, kind of a so. family scenario. But when we were to look at it, we were able to tell by the relationships that dad wasn't dad. And uh, the murder rate might have been higher in Toronto that year. <laughs> so he really had to move around. <laughs> did you, but did you ever have to, before we get into the final piece of this, did you ever have to disclose at least to the, uh, to, to let the wife know, you know, hey, we know? You know what? So most of our investigations, the people were just periphery. So we didn't really have to have any uh, involvement with the people. There was one case where we did have to let them know because they actually did a kit for us. And it was like, it wasn't actually dad that wasn't dad. It was grandpa that wasn't grandpa. Um, so we did have to let her know and she wasn't too, uh, too pleased with that. But uh, in the other cases, luckily enough, they were just periphery people and we didn't actually have to uh, approach them. So That's good because the other thing too is if, if they've grown, if this is the way it's gone on, the last thing you want to do is just disrupt the family just simply because you can. That's right. Yeah. It's, I mean, nobody wants anything to do with that. It's really none of our business. And uh, did, you have an, did you have a legal obligation to notify that family about the grandfather? Um. Well, she kind of she kind of knew, so she had an inkling. So that's kind of why she did the uh, the kit for us. She was kind of like, mm, something's not right in my family tree, and I kind of want to know what it is. So she was actually uh, proactively coming to us to say, how did it come back? How did it come back? And I mean, when she got the matches, and uh, she could see for herself that it grandpa wasn't grandpa. So got it, got it. Okay. Wow. Well, good thing you weren't doing Steve's family tree because it's a single branch. That's all it is. There are no hey, it's forks easy. anywhere. It's, it's easy to follow that. <laughs> you know, a rookie investigator could follow that one. Yeah, that's, that's a throwdown case. So now you're left with the one uh, family tree and the two. So let's let's talk about that. Yeah, so we're down to one. Um, in, in that family, there's, there's two brothers. Uh, one, we looked at both the brothers. Uh, one had... Uh, a long service of um, uh, civil service. Um, we didn't believe that that he was going to be involved at all, um, so we focused on the other brother. And uh, how far do you want me to go with the, with the other brother? Do you want to get well, into we're it? We're kind or? of holding off because there is a big reveal here. But let's talk about this. Even looking at the other brother, did you start developing information that there was some kind of a relationship between one of your suspects and the family? Were they acquainted in some way? Yeah, so um, as I stated before, we have software that's uh, been built to make sure that any interjurisdictional investigations um, are provided to all the, the relevant police services so that nothing goes missed. So we actually took... Uh, took our name of, of one of our suspects and we, we ran it through this, this software. Nothing came back on the name, um, but we also took his addresses from the past and ran it through, and we were able to determine that uh, um, one of the addresses that uh, one of the our persons of interest was involved in the case and did have attachments to the, uh, the, fam the Jessa family. What kind of attachment? So it appears that they uh, they worked with the Jessup family and they they socialized with the uh, the family as well. It was more um, the person of interest's wife than it was uh, the person of interest, but it was more his wife that had socialized with uh, with the Jessup family. But that still gets you there, though. I mean, that's like now we're close, right? Yeah, I mean, once we saw that, it was. Uh, I mean, in the initial um, interview of Christine's mother. 
Um, she named five people that would have had access to her home when she wasn't there. And these people were on that list. So at that point, we're like, I think we're here. But you've got one big problem. Yeah, he's uh, deceased. He committed suicide four years earlier. How? Uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. So I guess uh, his life started down, spiraled downhill. He uh, he had divorced from his original wife. He'd married someone else. She died natural causes. He'd had some gambling debts, uh, started drinking, and had a number of suicide attempts on on himself. And uh, the final time, he made sure that uh, that he was going to be successful. So. And that name is Calvin Hooper. That's stuff that's known in the. Um... Uh, Canadian press, so it's not like we're giving anything away. This this is well-known right. information. So um, was there any indication that his suicide was related to the murder? He did leave a note, but it basically just said, have a good life. Uh, he, there was nothing to say that he didn't come forward and admit to anybody that he was involved. But I mean, if you look at the downward spiral of his life, it appears as though at some point he started to regret what he had done um, over the course of his life. And uh, and he just couldn't live with that. So let's take two tacks here to, to, to bring this kind of to a close. The One of them is you know, obviously you go back and look to say, look, did he talk to anybody to admit to anybody? Do we have testimonial evidence to say he did this? And then the other thing is, how do you go about getting DNA from a dead person so that you can do your one-to-one match? Yeah, so that's the meeting that we had. And we were all thinking that we were going to have to approach the family and maybe find out where he was buried and actually exhume the body to get DNA. Um, it wasn't a great scenario because we would have had to notify the family at that point and it would have... Uh, it, everything would have got out as to what we were doing. Um, so we were actually, we got lucky because he had committed suicide. Um, we knew that there was going to be an autopsy. So we approached our, uh, our center of forensic science that does our autopsies for us to see if they had kept anything from his autopsy. And we were lucky like enough. Like any that, tissue samples or blood right. or anything? Yeah. And they'd what actually they keep? kept, they'd actually kept two vials of blood. So they took three vials of blood they tested one. They were able to utilize that to say his cause of death um, definitively, and the other two were never tested. So they actually still had these blood samples. So, I mean, I can leap to a logical <laughs> conclusion. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. how do you get to the blood samples? Well, you know, I mean, we brought everybody on board, and it was determined that we uh, we actually had to write a, a search warrant to because the blood was seized under a coroner's warrant, so we couldn't use that in criminality. So we actually had to write a search warrant to walk the blood from um, toxicology to biology to be tested one to one against uh, Calvin Hoover's uh, DNA. So we we put that warrant together. Um, we had it signed by a judge. They walked it uh, across or across the hall or upstairs, downstairs, wherever it was. Um, and then they tested it one to one against uh, the actual offender DNA from the, the, the underpants of Christine. This had to be an I don't want to say an easy warrant to get because there's a lot of, you know, you had to obviously lay the groundwork. But this was kind of a no brainer at this point. Right. I mean, there, under any circumstance, could you think that there would be a judge that would not issue this warrant? No, I mean, our biggest concern was how we were going to explain the process, right? That was our, that was our biggest concern was um, how we were going to explain what we had done because it was new. It was new to Canada. It was new to, uh, to our investigative process. So it was, that was our big difficulty. But uh, we came to uh, bringing a lot of people on board. We were able to come to a conclusion of how to do it uh, um, and how to get it through and get it signed. 
had this been done before, not just in Toronto, but had this done, had this been done before in Canada? So genetic genealogy had been done in Canada and in one other case, but again, the offender was deceased. Uh, they were never named and there was no warrants that were done through that case. Um, so this was the first one that was was really active and there actually had to be an investigation too. So you get the warrant. Um, what happens next? I mean, tell us the, I think we figured it out, but you got to still tell us. Yeah. I mean, they walked the, uh, the blood samples over and it was tested at our CFS. And as we said before, usually that's a six to eight week process. I mean, this case was so high profile and, uh, our CFS people are, are amazing. Um, they, they had the results for us in six days. Uh, so we received a call six days later and they said that, uh, um, they can't be excluded. Um, which means to us basically that um, it is the offender and then they'll give you a ratio of how likely it is um, that he is the offender. And it was in the basis of uh, three trillion to one that it was someone other than him. I think you Damn. could call it a day. <laughs> yeah. At that wow. point, we're pretty good. We're pretty happy with that. <laughs> Three trillion wow. to one. Well, somebody might go, yeah, but there's three trillion and one to one. What if it's that one guy? That's right. Yeah. So. My favorite saying is, what if worms had machine guns, birds wouldn't fuck with them? You know, <laughs> what if, what if this? Now, three trillion to one. So at that point, now, you know, you've got the guy. Now, how do you, the real, real question is now is how do you go about the process of letting everybody else know now, including the family? the suspect's right. family, and the public that you're bringing this case to a close. Yeah, I mean, so we have to obviously notify our command because they were going to do the announcement of exactly what had uh, what had come out of this case because it was such a pro high-profile case. Um, but as you guys know, um, you let anything out these days in one tweet, and it's across the world in seconds. Um, so we really had to kind of close ranks. I mean, we had a lot of people that knew about this, so we just uh, we spoke to everybody, asked that it wasn't uh, made public, and we sent people to all the stakeholders, um, the family, the uh, Guy Paul Moran. Um, we spoke with the judge, Justice Kaufman. Uh, we obviously notified York Regional, Durham Regional Police, um, the offender's family. We sent people to all their addresses, and uh, about 15 minutes before our chief was uh, ready to release it in a press conference, our Corpcom people let us know that they were ready to go, and we uh, we gave everybody the news. How was it received? So my partner and I, we were sitting with uh, with Janet, uh, Christine's mom, and uh, we we're we'd bought her some lunch. We were sitting there. I mean, we, we talked with her. We'd talked with her all the time. We visited with her. So it was nothing unusual. And then, uh, about 15 minutes before we told her that we knew who the offender was and, uh, um, she froze, um, she's such a strong woman for everything she's been through. And she just thanked us and said that she actually thought she was going to die without knowing who had killed her daughter. And she was just, uh, she was just so thankful that, uh, uh, that we were able to provide her with that information. I mean, obviously it was a shock to her. And then we, we sat and watched the Chiefs press, press conference together. When you gave her the name Calvin Hooper, what was her reaction? Originally, she didn't remember him. Um, but then we mentioned his wife and she did remember the wife um, and said that he didn't really come around a whole lot, but she did remember the family. Um, and... Uh, I guess it just had to set in that it was actually somebody 
that they knew and socialized with that had actually done this to their daughter. Was there any testimonial evidence from anybody else that says, yeah, he had, other than the suicide note, the kind of tangential, did you ever come up with anybody after this came out said, yeah, he confessed to me, he admitted to me. Did you get anything like that? No, we tried. We put that out um, hoping that we would get that. Um, we think that if, if it had been anybody, it was probably his wife that, uh, that ended up becoming deceased. Um, they were the closest together. Uh, we, his wife was deceased too? His second wife was deceased. She died of natural causes. We think if anybody, it would have been her that he would have admitted to, but nobody else came forward saying that, uh, that he admitted anything to them. Was his family shocked, surprised? Uh, shocked is an understatement. They were mortified by, uh, yeah. by these facts. They, they just, they absolutely couldn't believe it. So... Yeah, I mean, that's like the, the seven stages of grief. I mean, it's like first it's yeah. denial. Yeah, you just can't believe it, right? So uh, how did they work? Who who, who in your office gave the news to the suspect's family? Um, so it was uh, one of the detective constables and one of our detectives that went out to uh, break the news to the family. The detective is actually still in touch with, uh, with Calvin's uh, ex-wife. Um, they converse regularly now. Um, she came in and gave us a full interview, a couple hours worth of interview, tell us everything that she possibly knew um, in regards to this. But Anything come out of that that gave you a, at least a kernel of information or anything that kind of gave you insight? Well, you know, it, it really shed light on the, the type of personality that was involved that we're dealing with here. I mean, he, he was just not a nice person, obviously narcissistic. Um, he would disappear for days on end. Oh, I'm working. I'll see you in two days. Um, he'd, he'd had a long-term affair at work. Um, he was just very self-centered, very much about himself. He left, uh, he left his wife to look after the kids, four boys. Um, he just, uh, he was all about himself and what was good for him. He didn't, uh, really have too many concerns about anybody else. You mentioned profiling before, um, uh, you know, in terms of offender profiling, you know, or some type of behavior profile, was there ever a behavioral profile developed by, you know, any of the professionals to give you an idea of what kind of suspect you were looking for? You know, we didn't go through all the papers. So we had actually four skids, the, uh, the large, um, the giant wooden skids full of information in this, uh, in this case. So, we have just come to the point now where we've been able to digitize it. So we're going to be able to go through the entire case, but it's massive. The case is massive. So um, we haven't been able to delve into every nook and cranny of it yet um, to see what was in there. So I'm not sure if that was, I, I would imagine it was done. We just haven't been able to pull that information out yet because it's just such a glut of information. Well, the case is closed. Why go back through all this work? Well, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that Calvin didn't do this anywhere else. I mean, we were in contact with a lot of U.S. services because he traveled for work. I mean, we contacted uh, Chicago, New York, um, Dallas. Was any of his DNA ever submitted to uh, our systems for comparison? It was. So his DNA with uh, the Jessup matter was run through the U.S. as well as the U.K. regularly um, and nothing had ever come back. But we just wanted to uh, to be sure that there wasn't any missing children in these jurisdictions in the times that he had traveled there. Now, most of his time was traveling for work. So but you just never know. Right. So we're still actively investigating just to make sure that there's nothing that we haven't missed in this case uh, prior to or between the time of his death and the time of Christine going missing. What kind of work did he do? 
he was uh, installer for telecom companies. So he'd install phone lines or um, um, alarms, those sort of things. So did you get any clarity then about the day of the kidnapping and murder? Did anything ever come back? Were you able to finally piece out or piece together how this happened, how she ended up getting kidnapped, Christine? Yeah, I mean, we're not sure. There's a couple different theories. I mean, the initial theory is that she came back on the school bus and then was uh, was abducted getting off the school bus. Um, there's also a theory that he may have picked her up from school in his vehicle as well. Um, it does appear as though he bought clothes and actually had dressed her up in different clothes than she was wearing from school because um, the clothes that were found at the scene weren't actually the clothes that she uh, went to school in that day. So we believe he actually dressed her up uh, uh, for whatever reason. Um, what a sick bastard. Yeah. So Can we go up there, dig him up, and shoot his ass and bury him again? Is that legal in Canada? It's, it's American-style justice, right? <laughs> I, look, I joke, but I don't joke, because as a father oh, wow. of a daughter, I've got some sons, but as a father of a daughter, I can't, I can't tell you how I would respond if I knew who the perpetrator of a crime like that was. Uh, that, right. I mean, it's just, what does it take to get to that point to where you think, I, I have this fascination, this fixation, what triggered that, you know, in terms of kidnapping her, dressing her up? He's obviously playing out some kind of fantasy. He's He's got a fantasy role. He's fantasizing. He's doing something. And then to kill her and drop her off. I mean, that to your point, narcissist, no regard, just throws her out in the open. Doesn't care what happens to her. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't even imagine. I Like I said, I, I mean, we've gone over this a number of times. I just, I can't imagine what what these people are capable of or what goes through their minds or their, I, I just can't even imagine. Well, you know, and, and it's, it's, um, I, I can see why you consider continuing with the case. Cause once these people get away with a crime like that, that emboldens them to think, well, if I got away with once I can get, I, I must've done everything perfectly. I can get away with this again. That's right. And I mean, one of our concerns is the fact that the body was found. So did that, does that teach, right? As you know, like sometimes these offenders, they're highly intelligent and this could teach them um, how to be better the next time. Right. Right. Well, I'll tell you, we learned a lot. Um, we had Dave Reichert on. Um, Dave was the lead investigator for the Green River Killer. He was episode 13 and that's one of, he, he investigated over 49 bodies, you know, over 49 cases, and then they tied two more to it. And exactly what you're saying, you can look at what happens is their MO may change, their method, you know, their modus operandi, their method of operation, but their signature a lot of times will remain the same. And that's what you look for a lot of times is the, what's the signature. And that's what Dave said too. Uh, you know, even uh, Gary Ridgway, he learned from his mistakes. He learned, you know, what he did and he got better. He got, and that's where the geographical profiling came in. Cause there's this kind of thing that says you only can go out so far um, because you got to make it back in time. So they were able to, based on where the bodies were, when they went back and did this geographic profiling, you know, post-mortem in a sense, one of the biggest hotspots was where he worked at that Kenwood, uh, Kenworth truck facility. And a lot of things were related around that. And then when you did the investigation, he actually went to lunch and he had bodies uh, in, in, the, in the bed of his truck that were covered up that he had killed that morning and then would take out during lunchtime and bury them. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, we had another high-profile um, nine-year-old girl go missing a year later, um, and her body's never been found. Um, so we're it. It was uh, Moran. Her last name was Moran, um, and she. We're still investigating that 
that case. And um, we're looking to see if there are any connections uh, involved with, with him as well. I mean, it was out of the city of Toronto. It was a year later. Um, he could have been working in the area. Um, so we've got a few leads that we're, uh, we're following up on now. But I mean, in this case, the big thing is to actually find her body and then hopefully there is some physical evidence. Uh, I know it's been years and years, but hopefully there's still some physical evidence that we can utilize. Like you say, the science has changed so much. You never know stuff that we couldn't have done that we needed a pancake size, you know, pile of DNA to do. Now you can do, like you say, with the, 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 you know, the, the, the head of a pen, we can now, you know, get the same information from. So, right. man, what a hell of a job, dude. I, I'm Ooh, telling you. I know. Good job uh, for you guys. I'm sitting man, here. I'm I'm part fascinated, part pissed off, and part envious. It's like, yeah. damn. And, and what, you know what? what it a all, great job. What it all boiled down to is you guys taking the initiative to find out what's the latest investigative technique out there by going to that case, you know, to learn more about DNA, and then taking the initiative to con to continue to pursue that to educate yourself. So, hats off to you guys. Phenomenal job here. Yeah, thanks. I mean, the, this change in science has opened um, a million doors for us. I mean, we're, we're utilizing it now to identify our unidentified human remains, people that haven't had their names for years that we're able to give them their names back. I mean, it's, uh, it's a technology that's, uh, that's only going to benefit the community um, and people that are missing their loved ones or have had their loved ones murdered. This is, this is here to support those people, right? So it's, it's on us to utilize this technology that's available to us. Absolutely. And that's, you know, the, 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 the responsibility of a police officer is you're a public servant. How are you serving the public? And you guys are doing a phenomenal job. I just, I'm real impressed with you guys. That's uh yeah, if you want to see the size and scope, have you ever gone to NamUs.gov here in the United States, Steve? No, I Namus? haven't. Uh, you're Murph. He's Steve. Come Sorry, on. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting caught up in this. This is good. <laughs> so go. it's NAMUS.gov. It's our basically our national database of missing and unidentified people, the exact same thing. I mean, it's like it is a huge repository because uh, I was in there doing a presentation to our attorney general's office here in the Commonwealth. We're working on a project. Um, basically building out a system for information. It's like DNA, but for information, how can you connect people based on social DNA? You know, um, and so uh, we're, we're in the process of building that out. But yeah, it's like when you go through and it's not just the missing, the number of missing persons is just heart-wrenching. But then to your point, it's the number of missing and unidentified uh, remains, you know, or uh, recovered, but unidentified remains that you go, these person, they, they deserve, you know, comes out of a famous Supreme Court case, but a Christian burial. You know, they need their names. They need their identity. No, I totally agree with that. I mean, to have somebody just buried in an unmarked grave for years and years on end and have families wondering whatever happened to their loved one, I just... It's uh, it's unacceptable, especially with the science we have these days. I mean, we have to put the two together. We have to put that person, give them their name and give the family um, what what happened to their their loved one. Right. Um, at least they'll know. At least they'll know. And at least they get a chance to properly bury the uh, their loved one that they've been missing for however many years. You know, I just I, I, I pulled up that M-A-N-N-A-M dot U.S. Uh, well, actually, it's name is. Yeah, namus.gov. And they're showing 600,000 individuals go missing every year. 600,000? 
Now, a lot of them get recovered, but, you know, a lot of them, some will get recovered or get found, but it's like, but yeah, it's the long-term when you go in and do the sort and you look for the number of people long-term missing longer than a year and the number of bodies recovered that are Mm -hmm. unidentified, that number is staggering. 4,400 unidentified bodies every year. 4,400, holy cow. So here's a quick tidbit of information. So one of the, uh, this is how much DNA has changed because there was a huge debate about this. We have in Arlington Cemetery, not too far from where I'm at, it's called the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And there was a huge debate raging. Should we do DNA testing on the remains? Should that person be given the identity? And they did. They did testing on it. They did mitochondrial DNA testing, and it came back to a first lieutenant, Michael Blossy, I think it was. But they were able to identify that person. Uh, because the saying used to say, here stands, you know, here, here lays... Uh, uh, the mortal remains of a, a body known only to God. And it's like, it's DNA allows us to know these things now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, these are things that that we need to continue with, right? I mean, it's, nobody needs to go unnamed anymore. And uh, and a lot of these cases that do have DNA don't need to go unsolved anymore. It's uh, it's time that we we put this to a test and, and uh, solve all these uh, these unknowns. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, man, uh, look, um, this I mean, cool obviously, case. yeah, I mean, obviously you're working on stuff. Um, are you, you know, without giving away, like we say, state secrets, are you close to closing one or two more? Are you, you know, how close are you to some other cases? Right yeah, now? we've got about five or six that we're close to closing right now. Criminal cases. Um, Is the offender still alive? So I believe in at least two of them, the offender's still alive. So um, hopefully we're able to get there. Hopefully we're able to uh, make an arrest in a couple of the cases and uh, actually prosecute one of these for homicide. I mean, uh, that's been the big challenge, right? Let's go through the courts and uh, and sync this in where this is. Uh, um, it's embedded into case law that it's now judicially recognized as an appropriate investigative uh, tactic. And you educate and you educate the court. That's right. And this was our process from the beginning is that we wanted to develop a system that was going to be able to be tried through court. So, I mean, we've taken we've taken it slowly and we've taken it very seriously that we want this to be able to be bulletproof in a court court of law. So we've done everything that we possibly can to make this uh, successful. I mean, it would be great to prosecute someone and get that as case law and then then move on from there and just continue to uh to utilize these uh techniques so in the united states it's called the fry test f-r-y-e i believe it is in other words it has to go through a process of review so that it's scientifically accepted you know in a court of law now here's a here's a quick tidbit one of the i wasn't involved in this homicide cases but one of the homicide cases we had um, we actually had one of the original scientists that actually worked in the oj case cellmark cellmark diagnostics did the DNA analysis in the O.J. Simpson case. Dr. Robin Cotton was on the stand there. She actually came out and testified in one of our homicide cases way back when. And like you say, this is just, yeah, this is the late 90s, you know. And But it's just like, but you're right, it has come so full circle and you guys are doing a great job up there. Now, have you, have you gotten to the point where you've been able to really refine the DNA testing on cheese to know exactly which farm it came from? 
What about the sniff testing? <laughs> we couldn't end on too serious of a note. I mean, this is, but I got to tell you though, Steve, I mean, this is me. People can't see this. This is me saluting you saying, I'm glad we've got great neighbors like you to the North. Don't, don't Absolutely. try and invade us. We'll kick your ass. Just remember behind every American door is an American holding at least five or six guns. So it's not going to go well, pal. <laughs> All I got to do is yell free beer and Wayne Gretzky's giving out free autographs and I can identify who all our own. <laughs> uh, there's my thinking. We're going to, we're going to lay a trap for all the snowbirds. Be like a U.S. Marshal's roundup. <laughs> <laughs> rope. We'll call, we'll call it rope and hockey. Come, you know, come find us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Steve, man, look, um, how much longer you got on the job before you decide to call it quits? Uh, probably at least five years, four, four and a half, five years. So, what's we'll your see. next great adventure? Are you going to stay what you're doing now, or do you do? Would you like to move into something else? You know what? I don't know. I mean, I guess I'll see where things go. I love this stuff right now. I mean, it's it's just in its infancy, so I'd love to get this into a, an actual unit all to its own. Um, we've made an application for some. Uh, some funding from the government and uh i'd love to create a, a unit that specifically does this across the country right a lot of the small services don't have the means to do this so and every homicide look everybody counts i like what uh harry bosch says michael Conley wrote you know the whole novels about harry bosch and they had it on tv but his one great line which i fully subscribe to he says either everybody counts or nobody's counts right and these small towns without the resources, they need to have their homicide solved too. Yeah. And that's part of our pitch. That's part of our pitch for the, the funding was it that we'll um, apply, we'll monitor the, uh, the services, but we'll include everybody uh, our Northern services, anybody in Ontario, uh, the funding's just for Ontario. I mean, eventually we'd like to expand across Canada and be able to, uh, to include everybody across Canada, both for UHRs as well as for criminal cases. But, uh, you know, we're going to try to start with Ontario and see where we can go from there. And this has got to be very self-satisfying and what, a, you know, I mean, God bless you that you're within five years of retirement. You know, we love it when the good guys get to there and can enjoy life now. But what a fantastic way to go out also. Holy cow, that's fantastic. I, so that's are we going to see you in the United States as a snowbird? Are you going to be infiltrating in five years from now? You never know. I, th I think I'd go the Vegas way, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll be watching for you, pal, at the border. We'll be watching. We're going to start setting roadblocks up here at the Georgia-Florida border. Cheese sniffing canines in use. I'll just throw a big block of cheese across and then I'll make a break for it. <laughs> Who would have thought we'd be talking about cheese and, uh, you know, and by the way, final thing here, just a piece of advice in a group of guys, you got to clarify before you say a snip between the jeans. Just, just be very, let's be very clear about that. Okay. All right. I'll, uh, I'll clarify that as next and time. Doctor, I don't want to think I'm walking into a vasectomy as opposed to you're just going to take a DNA sample and I can help you clear a case. Okay. <laughs> Hey, Steve, it's, it's been a true honor having yeah, you man. on here. Thanks for giving us your time today. I, you know, I mean, we're taking up your time to educate our listeners and ourselves as well. So it's been fantastic having you on here. Thank no, you No, I appreciate much. you guys giving me the time. I mean, this was, this was awesome. This was a, an amazing uh, uh, podcast to, to be able to be involved with. Like, I really appreciate that you guys uh, allowed me the time to talk. We're trying to get the Canadians up to the number two spot again as, as our, you know, number two in worldwide listeners of Game of Crimes. You guys dropped down to number four, so. Well, having me on is not going to help you with that, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you, you never know, especially when I get to all the cheeseheads in Wisconsin, our numbers should skyrocket through the roof, so. There you go. <laughs> all right, man. Well, hey, Steve Smith, 
you are you are man it's a pleasure and it's an honor to have you on this podcast absolutely you guys have done great work um so we look forward to hearing about your next case that you solve so come back to us when that happens and everybody else hang on stay tuned for the debrief I told you this was inspirational. 36 years. They stayed on this case 36 years. Mm-hmm. The wrong guy went to prison to begin with. This just shows you what happens sometimes in spite of everything. Um, sometimes the innocent do get convicted and go to prison, but that's never the outcome you want. That's why DNA testing was so important to get that guy released, to completely exonerate him of the crime. And then the way you solve the crime is you find the person who did it. And unfortunately, in this case, the dude was already dead, and I voted. I said, look, let's dig his ass back up, shoot him several times, and bury him again. I mean, that was my solution. But, man, what a great job by Steve Smith and the Toronto Police Services. Professionally, my hat's off to you guys. You know, and, and I know a lot of our listeners are parents, and you just if you're the parent of a daughter that's um, – you know, I have, I have two sons and two daughters both, but, you know, I guess – I don't know. It's maybe it's a chauvinistic thing, but you want to be protective of your daughters a little more maybe than your sons. And the fact that this little girl was only nine years old and he he violated her and then stabbed her to death. I mean, it was and to and to hear Steve talk about the stab wounds, how the guy was having a hard time penetrating her her ribs and her chest to kill her. You just don't know what horrific horrific torture she must have gone through before she finally passed. So. God bless Steve and the Toronto police. Thank you, Steve Matelski, for, for introducing us to him. And Steve Matelski has introduced us to another Canadian police officer that we will be bringing to you sometime. Wait, in the I future. think we're over quota on Canadians. I mean, until, <laughs> until you bring your numbers up, I don't know if we can bring another Canadian on. Sorry. Well, hey. he's, they're, they're the border country that we like. So, you know, we'll, we'll do everything we can to help them out. Yeah. And you know what I thought was the most interesting thing about this case besides solving it was... Steve's huge seizure. How many kilos of Roquefort cheese did he get coming across the border? <laughs> Great sense of humor. <laughs> I got I got four kilos of Roquefort. What'd you get? Well, I got two kilos of blue cheese, but man, it's going for, you know, 92,000 a kilo. So I uh, got you there. Hey? All right. No, hey, we're having fun with you guys. Hey, but guys, but great job. And again, uh, just we, we love it. And if you love what you guys heard, head on over to Apple and Spotify. Give us those five stars. Give us those five, uh, you know, cheese, uh, you know, kilos of cheese, whatever it is, whatever it is that ends in five, just go on over there and hit it. Head on over to gameofcrimespodcast.com. Uh, all the stuff about the show, pictures, everything. We put it on there. Books. The, our book list is there as well. Follow us on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. But the place you got to be, place you got to be is over on Patreon. And Steve, like we did, you know, you got to go listen to this. You got to go to patreon.com slash game of crimes and listen to our latest uh, random surprise episode. Cause truly you can't make this shit up. Can you, <laughs> you know, and, and like we said in the, I think we said this in the intro, we probably have as much, if not more content on our Patreon channel than we do on the regular game of crimes podcast channel here. So come on over and join us. We have a lot of fun over there. Come join us. Game of crimes over on patreon.com slash game of crimes. All right, guys. Thank you guys very much. Once again, we appreciate each and every one of you listening. You know, tell one, share one, be a part of the movement that makes Game of Crimes a part of your daily life. It's recommended by the government and the FDA to get, you know, five doses of Game of Crimes per month. There you go. At least per week, if not, right? So, but thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. 